0: Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear that Lamentations verse every Sunday. And uh, my encouragement would be, as we spend some time on Sundays to talk about hope and joy and peace and love, and ultimately on Christmas Eve to talk about Christ, my encouragement to you would be to spend some time, Lamentations 3, 19 to 26, and just read through that and see how it is. Like, where do we see joy in this, or hope, like we talked about this week, or how do we see Christ in this passage, this season has been a, a weird one for everybody. Um, even though we're not in exile like the Israelites when the Book of Lamentations was written, the last nine months, let's say, have created a lot of things that you could lament. One could be lamenting, whether it's something as simple as like a change in routines around holidays, it could be something like serious financial windfall as a result of COVID and its restrictions. Maybe you've lost someone close to you or someone you know has lost someone close to you. There are plenty of reasons to lament, to take honest emotion to the Lord, and yet still to have the same overriding uh, reality that the author of Lamentations has, which is great is your faithfulness, yet I will hope. Um, That's how we want to spend this Advent season. Just recognizing that regardless of this season and its challenges and its difficulties, our hope is ultimately into the Lord. And it is good to wait quietly for salvation, which is what we spend Advent doing. So we'll have that rhythm on Sunday mornings. We also invite you to join with us as we go through the dawning of indestructible joy. It starts on December 1st. If you're a volunteer, you should have gotten one in the little gift bag we gave you. If you're not a volunteer, there were some out here last week that you could pick up, but we ran out of them. So there're still two ways to get that if you're interested in joining with us starting on Tuesday. One would be to go to Amazon. It's like 5.99. You could have it you know, Amazon Prime could have it to you pretty quickly. Or the other option is if you just go to Desiring God, the website, you can get a free digital download of that. You could get it on your computer or you could have it on your phone or whatever the case might be, and you would be able to track along with us every day. So that starts on on December 1st, and there'll be some ways that we look to interact with you on that. Sound good? All right, if you got a Bible, open it up to Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, that's where we're going to be this morning. And I want to make sure that we, like, position this correctly as we jump in. Last week, we just looked at the introduction of the the gospel of Luke, where the author, Luke, says, I'm writing to you so that you would have certainty about the things which you have been instructed. I want you to be certain and know with absolute rock-solid certainty about this Jesus that I'm telling you about. And then you look at verse 5 And Luke jumps not to telling you about Jesus, but instead to telling you about the parents of John the Baptist. I want you to have certainty about Jesus. Let me tell you about John the Baptist's mom and dad. What is going on there? If you think about uh, your favorite story, whether it's a novel or a movie, it could be like a short story or something, there's a main character, the protagonist, and then there's usually like. Uh, an adversary of some sort. Some movies, it's like an outright villain. Sometimes it's just another person in the story where there's some tension. And we call that person the antagonist. There's a main character, then there's an antagonist. And there are usually a bunch of just minor characters that kind of hover around the story. And even though sometimes on one of those minor characters, you get like a significant sidebar that tells you about their life or about them as a person or whatever, the story's always about the protagonist. It's always about the main character, whatever the circumstances are and whatever is happening in that character as a result of the action that takes place. And so everybody that circles around the story is ultimately pointing to that main character and what the author is trying to display. The same is true here in the Gospel of Luke. There are going to be a lot of people that come in and out of this story, some for just like one little account, some appear multiple times. Some, like the disciples, walk alongside Jesus for a very long time. And you learn things about those individuals, but don't get twisted on it. It's always about Jesus. The story beginning to end, Luke 1-1 all the way through the end of the book, is about Jesus. The whole thing. So is all of eternity. From eternity past all the way into eternity future, the story is about Jesus. Here's how we're going to do this this morning. We're going to read the passage like we always do, verse 5 down to verse 25. Then I want us to kind of get the first section of Luke, big picture, in mind. From Luke 1.1 to Luke 4.13, what is Luke trying to do for us? Then I want us to take this 20-ish verse chunk, and I want us to try to, like, inhabit it first-person style, like get all the way into it and see it from the ground floor, and then we'll try to make some connections. So we're going to start by reading. If you've got a Bible there in front of you, I'm going to start in Luke 1 verse 5, and I'm going to read to verse 25. Here is what it says. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, Because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am old, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zachariah, amazed that he had stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the way all of its pages and all of its chapters and books, all of its words point us to the reality of Christ, for our need for him, what it means to, be made righteous by him, what it means to live in relationship to him, what he's going to do when he returns. God, thank you that the entirety of the story of the Bible is all about Jesus, and thank you that the entirety of the story of human history is all about Jesus. God, I pray as we look at your word this morning, God, would you make it clear to our hearts how it is that this passage points us to the reality of Christ and what it means for us to live in response to it and what it means for us to live lives that are all about Jesus. Would you encourage us in that, Lord? Would you give us hope in that, Lord? Would you illuminate the places in our own hearts and in our own lives where it's not all about Jesus for us? And then by your Holy Spirit, would you challenge and convict us and take us by the hand and walk us forward that we might grow in those places? God, would we be a church and would we be individuals who live lives that make obvious and plain the reality that the story is all about Jesus? We pray this in his matchless name. Amen. All right, the first section. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, we're going to do a little bit of flipping. Luke bounces back and forth over the first three and a half chapters between something about John the Baptist and something about Jesus. Then something about John the Baptist and something about Jesus. and Then something about John the Baptist and something about Jesus. And he wants to set up a kind of comparison contrast. You're supposed to learn something about Jesus in the give and take and the back and forth of all of this. What you're supposed to learn is that John is great. This passage tells us he will be great in the sight of the Lord. But Jesus is greater and God is in control of everything that's happening. John is Great, rejoicing among the Israelite people at his birth. And yet, Jesus is greater, and God is in control of what's happening. Let me show you the way Luke builds this out back and forth. So, starting in 1 5 all the way down to verse 38, you get two birth announcements. Both happen from the angel Gabriel. Both happen to women who shouldn't be able to have children given their current state. And yet, the point is not to show you how these two are similar. The point is to show you how Jesus is greater. So you get the birth announcement of John the Baptist. That's what we're gonna see this morning. And then you get the birth announcement of Jesus, the Messiah. Then starting in verse 39 down to verse 56, Mary and Elizabeth come together and there's kind of an overlapping of the story for a moment. But again, There's a purpose there. It's not to say, look at how these two come together and how they're the same or how they're equal. In the events that take place, you're supposed to see that John is great, but Jesus is greater. Then you get the early life and the birth accounts of both individuals. So from chapter one, verse 57, down to verse 80, that's the end of chapter one, you get the birth account of John the Baptist, and then you get some pieces about his early life. And then starting in chapter two, verse one, all the way through the end of chapter two in verse 52, you get the birth account of Jesus and parts of his early life. Immediately following that, you get two wilderness accounts of both men. You get John the Baptist out in the wilderness teaching, proclaiming about Jesus, baptizing people, and then you see Jesus out in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Christ out in the wilderness. Jesus is being prepared for ministry out in the wilderness. But the point is clear when you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. John is great. Make no mistake about it. He is going to be great in the sight of the Lord and the Israelite people are gonna rejoice at his coming, but Jesus is greater, make no mistake about it. He is the Messiah, Savior, Lord. Literally, the universe is going to erupt in praise and in rejoicing at his birth. And God is the one who is orchestrating and driving it all forward. There's the first section. It's the presentation of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Savior. That's what Luke does first for three and a half chapters. Let's jump into verses 5 to 25 of Luke chapter 1. If that what we just did would be like the zoomed out version on your Google Maps or your phone's map uh, application where you can see like the whole blue line and your starting point and your ending point, what I want us to do is here. And I want us to get into a regular rhythm of this throughout uh, this series. Not necessarily every week, but for it to be something we do regularly. And that's zoom into like street view to where you want to make sure you don't miss the house that you're supposed to be stopping at. So you zoom into street view so you can literally see like what the front of the house looks like. Luke wants us to walk alongside Jesus. He wants us to see the details and understand what's happening. Most of us have general understanding of like the birth of Jesus. A lot of that might be sentimental. Some of it might not even be correct, but we think we generally know the story or we think we generally know some of the parables or we have a favorite account of Jesus interacting with someone and healing them or teaching or whatever the case might be. But Luke wants you to not have general ideas about Jesus. Luke wants you to know with certainty who this Jesus is. He wants you to walk next to Jesus all the way to the cross. That's how he sets up his account. And so we're going to do this this morning, and I want to do it primarily through the lens of emotions. The reason I want us to track that way is because a lot of what these individuals are feeling in this instance are things that we're familiar with. They're feelings that we've had before. Another reason I want us to do this through the lens of emotions is that Luke is unashamed to show you here was how a person was when they were longing for Jesus or looking for Jesus or talking to Jesus, then they had this encounter or they heard him and here's how they were after. And he's not afraid to use the emotion language. And so let's see how this plays out sort of from like the ground floor. Verses five and six start by just introducing us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're going to see a number of things about them. There's like, Some piety to them, who they are as individuals. There's a great deal of pain that runs in the background of their lives. And we meet Zechariah in the middle of what would be like his most prestigious moment. Verses five and six. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Piety. They're religious people. They're not just kind of religious people. They're not just externally religious people. The text says that they were righteous. They were blameless according to all the laws and commandments of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that they were sinless. That's important. It means that as a priest and what we're told about Elizabeth, the daughter of a priestly family, they were genuinely wanting to follow the Lord in all of his commands. And so they lived to the best of their ability in accordance with God's laws and in accordance with what they were supposed to do or what uh, Zechariah was supposed to do in his role as a priest. It's not just that they were born into the right families. It's that they truly desired to be faithful to the Lord. And so they were righteous, blameless, in his sight. Very similar to if you go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis, and we're told that Abraham, or we're told that Job was blameless or righteous in the Lord's sight. They weren't perfectly sinless, but they were genuinely trying to live well before the Lord. There's a sense of piety there. Then in verse 7, we learn another piece. They had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. That detail, if sort of the emotional climate in verses five and six is like joyful duty, that's duty is something we don't think about a lot as Christians, that there could be joy in dutifully being obedient to the Lord, even when our heart doesn't feel like it, even when maybe we would rather do something else, that we could joyfully be obedient That's something that we kind of miss in contemporary Christian culture. But that was Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're just joyfully dutiful followers of God, people of the Lord. And then you get to verse 7, and the tone totally changes. There's real pain for them. We're not told exactly how old they are. Maybe they're 50 55, 60, maybe they're 65 years old. We're simply told that they were well along in years, which is polite speak for they were old. I'm not saying that you're old if you're 50, 55, 60, or 65. I'm just telling you what Luke says. They were well along in years, and they don't have children. They're beyond the time frame where you would be able to have children. And so for, I don't know, thirty. 35, 45 years, they've longed for a child, prayed for a child, gone through all the ups and downs of trying to have children and ridden that like emotional roller coaster month in and month out. And at a certain point, they got to a place where they said, you know what? We're probably beyond the biological realm of possibility here. And they probably just resigned themselves to the fact that what the Lord had for them was a life of no children. We know what it is to long for something. Really deep down in our core to desire something and to have that go unmet. That's Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there's another component here. Elizabeth mentions it in verse 25. She says that the Lord has looked on her and he's acted in these days to remove her disgrace. In the first century and actually all throughout um, Israel's sort of history, it was believed that to be childless was a punishment from the Lord. That if you weren't able to have children, it's because you did something and the Lord chose to punish you by like closing your womb, making you barren. And so, not only is there this deep, sort of like gut level, heartbreaking sadness for them, there's also this layer of shame put on top. People think we're being punished. But we know that's not true, right? We've already been told they're blameless according to everything that the Lord has commanded. They're righteous in the Lord's sight. And so they live with this tension of all the grief and all the sorrow and all the heartache and all the shame that their culture would put on them because they're childless. And they've just probably resigned themselves to it. And then in verse 8, we get the account of Zechariah going into the temple. It says his division was on duty. So the priests uh, were divided into these separate divisions. And twice a year, your division would get called up and you would go to the temple and you would serve for a week while you were there. And as you were there at the temple, at some point they would cast lots and essentially draw names for who was gonna get to do the various functions inside the temple. So Zechariah goes with his division to serve for his week and his name gets drawn. And he's gonna get the opportunity to go into the holy place before the Lord and burn incense there. It's possible you could go your entire priestly career, serve your two weeks a year, every year, faithfully, year in, year out, and never have your name drawn to get to go into the holy place and serve this purpose. And so this is a moment of huge joy for Zechariah before he sees the angel, before he finds out that he's about to have a child. This was like one of the biggest days of Zechariah's career. Like, jot it down in the diary. Dear diary, today my lot was drawn. Something that he would not have been like able to wait to tell Elizabeth when he got home. You're never gonna believe it. I got to go into the holy place and burn the incense. (laughs) Maybe one time in your career you get to do that. Maybe it happens a couple times. Either way, this is a huge moment so with that in the background, the pain of being childless, the piety of a faithful life lived as devoted people of the Lord, Zechariah walks into the temple to perform what is maybe the most prestigious day at the office for him, only to find out that there's so much more happening than just this moment inside the temple. So what happens is in verse 11, An angel bursts onto the scene. An angel who has an announcement about a son. That angel is Gabriel. Before we start to read that, I want to read something from Malachi. Malachi is the last of the Old Testament prophets, he's the latest of the Old Testament prophets Um, for the Israelite people. After God spoke through Malachi, there was just 400 years of silence before the coming of Jesus. And so the words that Malachi recorded from the Lord, the prophet Malachi recorded, gave the Israelite people like this long-standing sort of hope that someday God's going to make not just this come true, but everything else he's ever said, and we're just waiting in silence until it happens. And so in Malachi 3, verse 10, God says this, "'See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then, you are, then the Lord you seek will come suddenly. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah,' before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. So here comes Zechariah, lot drawn, division serving. He walks into the temple, and before he can even light the incense, angel appears. And we're told that he's terrified, which is, the emotional disposition of every human being that sees an angel in the Bible. Why? Because angels reflect the glory of God. And so you get into the presence of an angel and you realize a sliver of the reality of God's holiness and righteousness and your sin. And it's absolutely terrifying. And Gabriel says, do not be afraid. This is verse 13. Because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Zechariah, with all that background stuff going on, goes in on his big day, goes to light the incense. There's Gabriel. He's terrified. Gabriel starts to talk and basically quotes Malachi to him. And Gabriel is thinking to himself, I don't even know what to do with all the emotions here. You're telling me, I'm, A, I'm seeing an angel. B, you're telling me I'm going to have a child, and I thought we were beyond the time frame where that was going to be possible. C, I think you're telling me the Messiah is coming because you're telling me that my child is going to be the one who goes before the Messiah to prepare a people for the Lord. I mean, imagine the moment there in the temple; it's just completely overwhelming. 400 years worth of waiting, and I'm the one standing in the temple when this ama- announcement gets made. He's delivering an answer to prayer. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers for a child are being answered here, but also Zechariah and every priest's prayer that the deliverance would finally come from the Lord. And here it is, Gabriel says, and he tells him seven things about this child. Number one, he's gonna be a joy to his parents. They've waited Decades for this, understatement, right? Obviously, he's gonna be a joy to his parents. Number two, he's gonna be a joy to all the people of Israel. They've waited centuries for this, 400 years for this moment. Again, understatement, Gabriel. You're underselling how wonderful this child is about to be. Number three, he will be great in the Lord's eyes. That is a serious distinction. Very few Old Testament individuals are called great in the Lord's eyes. It only happens just like a tiny handful of times. And here's the angel of the Lord saying, this child will be great. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not gonna be filled with wine or beer. He's gonna be filled with the Spirit from birth. He's gonna turn God's people back to him. We could take that phrase, turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers and do like a long sort of study on it. But it's basically an Israelite idiom for returning people to faithfulness. That's what this child is going to do. He's also going to turn God's people to true righteousness. That's number six. And then number seven, he's going to prepare people for the Lord. And that is the key. This baby who will grow into a man that is great in the eyes of the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit has a huge purpose. Zechariah, you're going to have a child, but not just any child. The Malachi promise is coming to you through your wife's womb. I mean, unremitted joy. Just stand in the presence of the Lord in the temple on what might've been the biggest day of your career and just have that be totally shattered by this huge announcement that the Messiah is coming and your child is going to prepare the way. And there's Zechariah overwhelmed by it all. And he's got a little conversation back and forth with Gabriel that starts in verse 18 because Zechariah is confused and he wants clarity. How can I know this, right? I mean, that's that's like the question that hangs over the book of Luke, right? How can I know this? I'm writing this so that you will know with certainty. And Zechariah standing before an angel says, how can I know? How can I know that this is going to be the case? And look at Gabriel's response, verse 19. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. How can I know that this is true? Okay, you're Zechariah and you're standing in the temple, but I am Gabriel and I stand in the literal presence of God. And he sent me to tell you this good news. That's how you can know for sure. But you want to like sign that you can know for sure, you're not going to speak until this child is born. Literally there, I have been sent to tell you good news or I bring good news. The Greek word there is euangelizo. It's where we would get the word evangelize. It means to proclaim good news, but it's all one word. So like the verbs and the nouns there are all smashed into one place. And so literally it's like Gabriel shows up and he says, I have been sent to good news you. Like That's why I'm here. How can you know for sure? Because I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of the Lord and I was sent to good news you, Zechariah. That's how you can know. And so Zechariah walks out, probably totally content to not be able to speak <laughs> And there's a waiting crowd. It's like, what took you so long? And Zechariah comes out because he can't speak. All he can do is start playing charades. But how do you play charades about, I just saw an angel who told me that I'm going to have a son. My wife is old though. And that son is the forerunner to the Messiah. So he makes some hand motions, probably just shrugs and walks off. And the people think to themselves, something happened in there. But we don't know exactly what it was. But we know it must be incredible. And they've got to wait nine months Until they find out. Finishes his week, goes home, and then sometime later, Elizabeth is pregnant. And there's that child who's an unbelievable joy to his parents, and Zechariah is thinking to himself, and a great joy to all the people, because he's the forerunner to the Messiah, our long awaited deliverer. But again, Don't get it mixed up. That whole account is not about John the Baptist. That's about Jesus. The story is about Jesus. I'm gonna good news you now. How's that sound? We just kind of work our way back through this. In our pain, the story is about Jesus. Think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. 30, 35, 40, 45 years of longing for a child, finally resigning them to the fact that it's not going to happen. And then one day, Zechariah goes to do what is a huge day at his job, but his job nonetheless, and he walks into the temple and he finds out that they're going to have a child who's the forerunner to the Messiah. And it's as if God is saying, I closed that womb for a purpose. Because I'm about to bring the Savior in your womb is going to bring forth the forerunner. I mean, imagine that moment. What Zechariah must have been feeling in there. That all this time of waiting and praying for a child is not only going to be answered, but it's going to be answered with this particular child unthinkable. And it doesn't mean that, like the application here is not that every time we go through something difficult or every time there's pain and challenge in our life that it's going to be answered in this kind of miraculous and unthinkable sort of way. But what it does mean is that even in our most painful places, the story is about Jesus and God is doing something in that pain for a purpose. He's not just sitting up in heaven and enjoys causing people pain. It's not just that he's wasting those moments. He's got a purpose for them. And that purpose is to scream something about his goodness and his glory and his grace into the vastness of the universe. And he's doing it through you. It doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't mean that Zechariah walked into that temple stood before Gabriel and heard this promise and then all of a sudden 30 years of pain of waiting is just gone. That's not true at all. No, that still hurts. There's probably still a swarm of questions. Could this have been our fourth child? Like, does this have to be the first one? It doesn't take the pain away, but it makes it clear that God is doing something. He's doing something that's about him, about his glory, about his goodness, his grace, his love, His mercy, God doesn't waste that pain in our lives. He's not allowing it because he enjoys pain. He's doing something that displays the awe and the wonder and the majesty of who he is. And there's so much to hope for in that. So much. Like Adam said, when we were doing our Advent time, we don't hope in changed circumstances. We don't primarily hope in different outcomes. Our hope isn't in another person. Hope in the biblical sense is built on the character of God. That because of who God is, we can have hope. Not just hope that Jesus is going to come back one day and wipe away all of our tears, though that will happen. Not just hope that Jesus is going to come back one day and demonstrate himself fully and finally to be victor over all sin and all brokenness, though that is going to happen as well. We have hope because we know the character of God that he's doing something right now. In that pain, in that difficulty, in that circumstance that seems completely unredeemable to display something about who he is and to shout that into the vastness of the universe. We can know that for certain. And so years, decades worth of waiting. And the story's not about Zechariah and Elizabeth. My wife and I have been married for 11 years. When we first got married, we would tell people, yeah, we plan to have kids in three to five years. It's been 11 it's not that we haven't tried. It's that for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened yet. And I don't know yet. Like I'm, I'm not to the point where I can say like, this is, the, this is the reason why. But I would be given to utter despair if it weren't for the fact that I can hope in the unchanging rock solid character of God that there's a reason for this. I don't know it but I know that the reason has to be about the goodness and the glory and the grace and the mercy and the love and the kindness and the beauty of who Jesus is. And whether that results in a child for us, I don't know. It could just result in lives that are more fully dependent upon him. And if that's the case, then all glory be to him. It could be that you thought you would have been married a long time ago you woke up single this morning and that is like the last thing you wanted. I don't know that you're going to be married tomorrow or you're going to meet the person that you're going to marry tomorrow, but I know that in your singleness and waiting that God's doing something that's about Jesus. Maybe your career's not where you wanted it to be or the business fell apart or... The diagnosis came in and it's not what you wanted, or it was completely unexpected. I don't have answers for all of that. I don't know all the pain that all the people in this congregation feel, but I do know that in all of that pain, there's still hope because of who God is and because of what He's doing in the world and in the universe for all of eternity. He's writing a story that's about His goodness and His grace. And He's Chosen humanity to shout that story through. In our piety, the story is about Jesus. All that religious obedience, it wasn't just about Zechariah and Elizabeth, it was about God. It gets recorded in the book of Luke and it just serves to build this story about the beauty and the wonder and the miracle that Jesus is. The same is true for us today. All of our obedience is about helping us look good in the eyes of the world. It's not just about being someone that when we're dead, someone would look back and say, oh, he's such a nice person. If that's the goal, then like a Pharisee, what we've got are whitewashed tombs, bowls that are clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. Our obedience, our piety, it's about Jesus. Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus saving us, we would have no desire to be obedient. If it weren't for Jesus sanctifying us, we would still want to live according to our flesh. And if it weren't for Jesus glorifying us, we wouldn't spend all of eternity sinless in the presence of the Lord and in perfect relationship with him. It's it's all about Jesus. The only reason I have any desire to live an obedient life is because Jesus saved me. The only reason in any given moment that I have any desire to turn from my sin and try to walk in obedience is because Jesus is sanctifying me. And the great hope of that endeavor is that one day he's going to glorify me and I won't have to wrestle with this flesh anymore because I'll just live in eternity where there is no more sin and so whatever righteousness that Jesus is able to like squeeze out of my own sin-stained heart in this broken world is all about him otherwise I'll just get to the end of my life and someone will say well yeah, I mean he was just like the rest of us like pretty pretty broken and trying to do it as best he could but there's hope I'll get to the end of my life and I'll die and somebody will say, man, look at Jesus through that guy. It wasn't perfect. It had plenty of brokenness. There were lots of stumbles, but the beauty of Jesus. And that's what the story will be about. In our prestige, the story is about Jesus. Think of Zechariah a moment of his greatest career accomplishment was actually a moment not for him at all. It was a moment for Jesus. It was a moment for the glory of God. And this this is like the best news for me personally because it speaks to the very core of who I am like dispositionally, temperamentally as a human. I just, I want to succeed. I want to do a good job at stuff. I want to be like respected or whatever. I want people to look at me and, think, like, he does a good job at his job, or he does a good job as a husband, or I want my wife to think that, like, you know, I'm not uh, terrible. (laughs) This is good news for me because ultimately my moments of wildest success aren't about me. They're about Jesus, and it's such good news. There's such hope in that because if my biggest life moment is all about me, well, like, what if it happened when I was, like, 22 and I'm just rolling downhill now? And at some point, downhill is going to be dead. Like, then what? Or if what I've really got to do to be loved by God is continue to achieve and continue to exceed and continue to look good in the eyes of people, I mean, the weight of that. Like, I I literally fight that battle internally in my heart all the time. And the weight of it can be totally crushing. But the good news is, that's not how it is. That's not how it works. Because the story ultimately isn't about me. It's about Jesus. And so when Jesus chooses to move in my life or your life in a way that brings great success or dramatic failure, He's not just adding little grains of sand to some sandcastle that each one of us is building that's ultimately going to be wiped away by high tide anyway. No, what he's doing is he's putting blocks into this giant monument that is forever, for all of eternity, and infinitely going to scream to the greatness of Jesus. And when we get to the other side of glory and we see the fullness of that monument and the fullness of all of that glory, we're going to need a telescope to see our teeny tiny little part down in the corner. But we're not going to be able to miss the beauty of the big picture. And there's so much hope in that. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And whether I'm talking about my greatest triumph or the time I fell on my face the hardest, it's about Jesus. And God's doing something in all of that that screams about his glory into the vastness of the universe. The story is about Jesus all the time, ever, always, only about Jesus. Think about John the Baptist as a human. What's his whole life about? The Messiah. He's literally born to pave the way for the Savior. So he's great in the sight of the Lord. We're told that. Absolutely. He's going to be a joy for his parents, a joy for God's people. We don't need to downplay those. Those are are facts about who he is, and yet he's the forerunner to the Messiah. That is what his whole life is about. And eventually, he'll be killed for it. The same is true for us. We don't have to downplay the fact that Scripture makes it clear that we're great in the Lord's sight. We matter. We're significant. We have intrinsic value. We're Ephesians' masterpieces of God's handiwork. We don't need to pretend like that's not the case. We don't need to pretend that we aren't a joy for the people around us, at least on our good days, right? Right? We don't need to pretend that, like, in the church, our gifts and our abilities aren't also a joy for the church. We don't need to pretend like it's not this grand and glorious task that we've been given to carry and proclaim the message of the Messiah to be a forerunner to the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth and all of the nations, but also don't get it twisted. That story is about Jesus primarily, not about us. There's so much hope in that. It means that at your life's lowest moment, you know that you matter. When you've hit absolute rock bottom and the pit is at its very darkest and there doesn't even seem like there's a speck of light out there for you to grab hold of, you know that you matter because God has chosen you to display something about himself to the universe. But it also means that at your life's highest point, you don't matter anymore. You haven't somehow increased your stature in the eyes of the Lord. So that means when you don't reach your highest moments or when you've got the day where you're not necessarily at your very best, God doesn't love you any less. He's chosen you on that day to say something about his glory and his goodness and his grace and his kindness and his love to the world. When you feel irrelevant, you know that you aren't. And all of that, you know that God is doing the eternal glorious work of shouting something about himself into the vastness of his universe, and he's chosen to do it through you. And the weight of that, like the beauty of that, I hope floors you. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing, like John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth were priests and they were blameless. And John the Baptist is John the Baptist great in the Lord's sight, so I totally get that. But then there's like me, this schmuck. Yeah, you. And all of the shortcomings and all of the failings and all of the darkness that exists inside of you, God has chosen you to say something about Himself to the ends of the earth that his glory might be displayed for all peoples throughout all time. The honor of that. The beauty of that. But we want to live as if the story is all about ourselves at times. That what God is really doing is trying to shout something about me into the universe. No. Zechariah and Elizabeth we'll see later in John the Baptist they get it absolutely right. This is, about, this is about God and his glory. This is about Jesus and the coming Messiah. And our life is to be the same. You can ask yourself this question every day. You can ask yourself this question multiple times each day when you kind of need to get yourself recentered. But you wake up tomorrow and you gotta get the kids off to school or you wake up tomorrow and you've got a hard day ahead of you at work or whatever is on your calendar. You wake up tomorrow and you're still single and you wanna be married or you're still childless and you thought you would have kids right now. Who's the story about? Ask the question, like, look into the mirror. Who's it about? And when we're tempted to answer, well, it's about me, we ought to remind ourselves we're not the protagonist. It doesn't mean that we don't matter. It doesn't mean that we're insignificant. It simply means that God has chosen to tell the story of his Son and all of its beauty and all of its glory through broken people. The universe doesn't exist to tell the story of Tim Fritz, and it exists to tell the story of God's glory. I just happen to be lucky enough to be a character in that story who's used to draw out the reality of that glory, and the same is true for you. The universe does not exist for, insert your name there, It exists to tell the story of God's glory and the beauty and the majesty of his son, Jesus Christ. And you just happen to be lucky enough to be chosen by God to display something about that reality. The story is about Jesus and we get to be in it. And all that happens to us is a means by which God is drawing attention to and pointing out all the facets of that glory. Our great joy is that God would choose us to do that. And that in all of our situations and in all of our circumstances, we can remind ourselves who's the story about. And we can bank on the character of God and hope in the character of God that it's ultimately about Jesus and that means it's ultimately a good story. Amen. Amen, let's pray. God, thank you for your son. And thank you for the fact that we can put our hope in the reality in all of our pain or in all of our piety and in our highest moments, our lowest moments, when we're obedient to your word and when we're disobedient to your word, you're displaying something about the beauty of your son. God, I pray that we would be people who live lives that it's not just that you're going to wring out all of the glory from it, though we know that you will. God, I pray that we're people who willingly and submissively Give that glory to you. God, when our hearts either forget or start to look at ourselves as if we're the point of the story, Lord, would you, in your grace and in your mercy, remind you that the story is about Jesus? And would we live lives that magnify and make great the truth of that reality? God, encourage us with the hope of your son, Jesus, challenge us with the beauty of your son Jesus and make known to the world the reality of your son Jesus in and through us. We pray in his matchless name, amen. Let's stand up and sing together.